Welcome to The Payoff. I'm Antonia Cerejido. And I'm Chris Duffy. The Payoff is your audio companion to all of Mike's money and personal finance coverage. We're on the web at mike.com slash payoff. Hey, Chris, I have a question for you. Okay. How do you feel about complaining? Complaining? Yeah, like when you go to a restaurant or you're on the phone with a company and you're like, something is wrong and you are complaining to them. You mean like my salad dressing didn't come on the side, even though I asked very clearly. <laughs> yeah, like that. Or maybe I see like a charge on my cell phone bill for a service that I didn't ask for. <laughs> exactly. Or maybe your tax return takes months to get processed and no one can really figure out why. You're still upset about your tax mystery. I'm so mad. Uh, well, I get where you're coming from. Uh, but honestly, as far as standing up for myself goes, when I need to complain, I, I truly hate it so much. I, one of my big things is I only want everyone to like me. I never want people to be mad. So things have to be un bearably egregious before I even think to complain. What about you? I don't mind complaining. I'm not surprised. <laughs> but I like I will say that I think I do the same thing that you do, which is like I will withstand something unbearable, but my reason for not complaining isn't because I want to appease everyone. I don't care about appeasing everyone. It's more like I don't want to waste any of my time. Yeah. I feel like you seem like a person who stands up for yourself more and has a lot more of like how dare you walk all over me. Whereas I'm like, it's an honor to be a floorboard for you. <laughs> well, thankfully, how you feel is actually very common. I'm not sure, thankfully, but it is probably very common. I'm just trying to make you feel less alone. <laughs> I, I definitely don't feel alone in this. In fact, I, I, did you know that a typical business only hears from about 4% of its dissatisfied customers? That is so depressing. Yeah, that's according to Customer Service Consultants' first financial training services. That's so wild. Yeah, that's why we're doing this episode. We're all about ways to help you fight for your money and hopefully feel great about it. Yes, I I really need this personally. And we're going to start, as always, with our opening segment that we like to call, Oh No! I'm so happy I'm liberated from this. You have no idea. I guess for the rest of the run of this podcast, I'm going to be yelling, Oh No! alone. I feel like that is true. And once we figured out how to be better personal advocates, we'll move on to our big interview. And for this episode, we're talking to one of the biggest advocates for American consumers, former Congressman Barney Frank, who you likely know from the law that bears his name, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. I am so, so excited about this, especially because it's very topical. There's some rumblings that maybe the current Congress is going to make changes to Dodd-Frank. It might weaken some of the protections or even get rid of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And we've talked a lot about that on this show. Yeah, you can either call it the CFPB or the Consumer Bureau, but it's definitely like the sexiest thing going on right now in like personal finance. The sexiest thing in personal finance by any name. <laughs> and at the end of our show, we've also got a story related to the CFPB in our final segment, The Bottom Line. Payoff reporter James Denon is going to be back on the show to explain a story about how the CFPB stopped a student loan debt relief scam that was costing borrowers real money and how there could be other scams like it out there affecting anyone who has student loan debt. Which we all know I have, so let's all of us stick around for that. Okay, here we go with our opening segment where we get over worries and confusion about something in the world of money. Yep, it's the kind of financial stuff that usually makes you cringe or cry. Or maybe even shout, oh no! So Chris, you say you hate complaining, even when you know you're justified. What's up with that? Well, I just, I do not like conflict. And when it comes <laughs> to what I would rather do with my money, it has to be such a large amount of money that I wouldn't rather just pay money to avoid conflict. What is the like most annoying thing you've dealt with, financial or otherwise, because you were too afraid to complain about? It's just a selection, a never-ending selection of fees or mischarges that are 
done wrong and then I'll call up and they'll be like, well, it's really kind of your fault. And I'm like, oh, if I ask to speak to their manager, I get rid of this. But then they kind of seem upset and I'm like, oh, I guess it is my fault. The craziest thing I've ever done, and this is not exactly complaining, but I feel like it's related, is that I have like a spot in our uh, editorial meetings where I always sit. Like I don't like moving where I sit. Mm -hmm. And one time somebody had stacked two chairs and it was very uncomfortable. Like my feet were dangling and for like a week, I just sat in two chairs. I feel like that is exactly, uh, <laughs> exactly the situation that I'm describing just with uh, a corporation or with a company. But yeah, point is I empathize and nobody wants to come off as entitled. But if you just walk away mad, doesn't that feel worse? Oh, certainly. There's no way that I am doing the right thing. I am aware <laughs> even in the moment that I'm doing the wrong thing. And yet this is a personality trait that I have not yet been able to shake. <laughs> So I did some digging and I found some great info on ways to complain effectively. And there's a lot of how to's on this online, including on the payoff site. I have not read these and I truly need them. So I'm very excited to hear what you're about to tell me. Okay. It comes down to these simple rules. Hit me. One, take emotion out of it. Stick to the facts. You're probably frustrated. And if you go into it with a bad emotional state, you might make the situation worse. Okay. So don't get cranky. Get serious factual i feel like this is a problem you don't have though. no my problem is not getting too angry although i definitely have seen people the other way where i'm like "Ooh, yelling at them is also not going to help number two know what you want to get out of your complaint if you don't have a clear concrete expected outcome there's no way you're going to be able to get there this is a big problem for me for example i'm at a restaurant they charge me for something i didn't order then i'm like oh they need to take this off the bill then i do complain but when i'm just like oh Delta moved my flight around. It seems like that's not fair, uh, but what do I want? I don't have a clear outcome. I'm just upset, but I don't complain and I don't know what I want. But like this thing about how you would get to the place where you know you want. I, one thing that I've learned from uh, watching other people is like sometimes if you send a letter to the company being like, hey, I'm a loyal customer and you inconvenience me in these ways, they'll at least send you like coupons or yeah, money off. And I never do that because I'm like, oh, I don't want to focus on negative emotions and sending a letter. But in, when I hear other people do it, I'm like, why didn't I do that? Number three, ask questions rather than making demands. There's this story in the New York Times that points out that if you ask a person you're complaining, what would you do if you were in my situation? That can be really helpful. So you ask the person that you're complaining to, what would you do if you were me? Also, isn't it crazy how much people love being asked that question in almost any situation? Yeah, people are like, role playing? What would you do if you were me? Okay, great. I'll pretend to be you. I'm on the phone and I'm annoying and my voice is weird. Let's go. You're saying that when I ask them to do that, they're going to pass along some sort of... Oh, you're talking about yourself. For a second, I thought you were like doing an impression of me and I got really offended. That would not be my impression of you. That was a very deep voice. <laughs> Number four, have all your ducks in a row before you present your request. This includes as much documentation as possible. I think that this is something that millennials should have no issue with. Yeah, getting your facts in a row, presenting your evidence, makes sense. I feel like I screenshot every interaction I have via text. Really? I really hope a lot of people don't listen to what I just said. Okay, mm -hmm. number five. Be prepared to escalate your complaint. As we heard in our big interview last week with Consumer Reports' Laura Lyons-Cole, a lot of times the first person you talk to can't actually do anything. So ask for a manager. Asking for a manager. See, this is one that I always feel uncomfortable about because you're basically saying to the person on the phone like, hey, you're not good enough at your job to solve my problem. That's what it feels like to me. I actually have the opposite feeling. Normally, I feel if I'm asking for the manager, it's like, thank God this person doesn't have to deal with this problem anymore because they can't mm. do anything. That must be so frustrating. I say things like, I know that you probably can't do much about this, so why don't you pass me the manager? That is such a useful way to reframe it. That, like, why waste this person's time? Let's just go to who can actually solve the problem. That changes things for me. It really does. You're welcome. I'm going to try it. You know, next time I feel like something's wrong, I'm going to run through these five tips, and I'm going to see if I can make myself feel better and maybe get something out of it, too. And guess what, Chris? 
I have a bonus tip. Okay, a bonus tip, please. (laughs) So sometimes an in-person or phone complaint is actually not the best way to get what you want. Writing letters or emails can be even stronger. And if you're not sure how to start with something like that, the Federal Trade Commission has awesome email and letter templates on its website at consumer.ftc.gov. The Federal Trade Commission has letter templates on their website. Like, it's like a Hallmark card for complaints. To make it so easy. Like, sorry that you're feeling sick about the way you treated me. Exactamundo. Very interesting and really good to know. Okay, you know what? I am ready to declare that my oh no about standing up for myself as a consumer has officially changed to an okay. (laughs) Coming up after the break, we'll talk to someone with a wealth of experience thinking about and putting into law consumer and financial protections former Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank. Stay tuned. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Joining us now is Congressman Barney Frank, who was a U.S. representative for the state of Massachusetts from 1981 to 2013 and served as either chairman or ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee from 2007 to 2013. He's perhaps best known as one of the architects of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, which was passed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Congressman Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. We've talked a lot on this show in the past about actions taken by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to protect consumers from bad actors. Can you talk about why you thought it was important to create something like the CFPB when you were drafting Dodd-Frank? I worked on it very closely with uh, Elizabeth Warren, and the point was very simple. There were a number of laws on the books that theoretically protected the consumers of financial services, people who dealt with banks people who had checking accounts, people who had credit cards, people who had taken out loans of various kinds. The problem is that the enforcement of those laws was in the hands of the regulators of the banks. The Federal Reserve, really counterintuitively, was was in charge of more consumer rules than anybody else. Uh, The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the control of the currency. Now, these are agencies that are set up, and in fact, they're important agencies. in the legislation we passed after the financial crisis, we gave them even more power because we do want them to regulate the banks. But their main focus is on protecting the overall economy, the macroeconomic level, to prevent the kind of massive misbehavior by financial institutions that led to the crisis. They, as part of that, 
do want to see that banks don't collapse. If enough banks collapse, you have a serious cumulative problem. As a result of that, their focus is much more on the institutions and on major economic activity than on individual cases. So while they were theoretically in charge of protecting someone who was uh, abused the way Wells Fargo abused people by giving them fake credit card accounts to their detriment, that really was not high in their agenda. I suppose if if a case came to them, they might look at it, but their, their focus was on, on the banks as institutions. We in the law we passed, took away from all of these other institutions the power to enforce consumer laws and put them into a consumer enforcement agency. We didn't want enforcement of the rights of consumers to be an afterthought, to be third or fourth on the agenda, to be one of the things they got to when there was no crisis. We wanted a separate independent agency whose sole focus was on those things. And that was the the rationale for it. In fact, it has become a much more energetic enforcer of, of these rules because that's all they have to do. You know, people can think about it themselves. If you've got five things to do, hmm. even if you don't consciously do it, you're ranking them in importance. Mm-hmm. You're putting some ahead of others. You give them priorities. Well, we didn't want enforcement of consumer rights to have to compete with anything else, especially since, and this has been part of the problem, in any individual case, there may not be much money at stake. The problem is, uh, you know, it's not much money for a large financial institution. A couple hundred bucks can be a lot of money for a consumer, and it certainly accumulates for consumers. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we, we just felt that consumer rights were going to get overlooked. It, it seems to me like most Americans have kind of a, a fundamental belief that if they're being sold a product or being provided a service, that they're not getting ripped off, that that's just not allowed. But it sounds a little bit like what you're saying is that there wasn't anyone stopping that from happening. Right. Look, I think most people who sell things to people are honest, but not everybody is honest. Well, we wouldn't have police officers. We wouldn't have other rules. Secondly, and here's a part of the problem, even among the honest sellers of something, there are competitive pressures, um, not in the consumer area, but in another area. Uh, there was an instrument that the big banks had where they were able to take on debt, but put it in into a form that made it look as if they didn't have that debt. Hmm. They really did. But that was part of the problem that led to the crash, because it turned out they were more heavily indebted than they were willing to admit. And I talked to the head of uh, Citicorp at the time and said, why, why do you do this? I, I don't understand. This is the debt of the bank. Why do you put this into this separate category that makes it look as if you don't have the debt when you really do? He said, because if I were to treat it in the right way, I'd be at a disadvantage vis-a-vis Goldman Sachs. And otherwise, it would look as if I was more indebted. So part of it is even even for the honest people, you want to they don't want to feel that somebody else is getting away with something. You know, again, we know this in our own yeah. lives. If you're doing the right thing and somebody else is cheating, is well, you you get annoyed and you might be tempted to say, you know, hey, I'm especially if you're competing with someone, and and yeah. they're cheating. So um, that that's exactly why, even though I do think most people are honest, you do need. Uh, uh, enforcement mechanisms. And the final point is, some of these things are pretty complicated. It seems like in many ways, the banks have found ways, or did before there was legislation like this, they found ways to make it so that uh, they won no matter what the outcome was. 
No question. And they both act sides like, of the yeah. game. And um, uh, by the way, another thing that we have in the credit card bill and the Consumer Bureau enforces this, very simple thing. We uh, require them, if you are the holder of a credit card, to pick a the same day every month when they send the bill. Mm. I once said to a couple of them, sort of half kiddingly, I think you watch me. And when I go out of town on vacation, you make sure to send me the credit card bill. So by the time I come back, it's going to be overdue. I mean, that's, again, something that might not yeah. have uh, occurred to you. Well, they had this practice in the credit cards that we outlawed called universal default. You have a credit card bill, and you pay the required amount every month. You pay some interest on it, and obviously that's another thing people should do. You, you, you are not being done a favor when they let you not pay the full bill to yeah. the extent that you can. That's a very high interest rate, even though we've, we've tried to put some checks on it. It's a good idea not to, uh, credit card interest is one of the highest interest rates you're gonna get. But what they would do is if you have a, carrying a, maybe you owe a couple hundred bucks and it carries on and carries on of three or four or a thousand, and you pay interest on it, and it's at a fixed interest rate, and the interest rate that you're gonna pay, you know what that is when you buy the, buy the good. And then you have a dispute with an a merchant unrelated to the credit card. You are sold something that doesn't work, and you refuse to pay that bill, and you don't want to have anything to do with it. You're still paying your credit card bill on a regular basis, mm. but you have another dispute with another merchant. Under the system that happened before we outlawed it, that merchant would report that dispute, and the credit card company would retroactively raise the interest rate, not on things you were to buy next week, but on the money you already owed. Yeah. Um, and we outlawed that. Uh, they called it universal default, which is one of those names they come up with that disguises its purpose. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of things which you might not have realized. Mm. Um, uh, but then there are also things when you say, wait a minute, you, you cheated me on this. Uh, by the way, we had the Wells Fargo issue where people did not know that credit cards had been issued in their names because they'd been issued and then rescinded. And you may say, well, that didn't hurt them, but it could have because if you have uh, a record of having a lot of credit cards and dropping them, that could affect your credit rating. Yeah. And you don't even know about it. So there's where you have the Consumer Bureau intervening without waiting for a complaint because people don't know they're being mugged. So we've talked a lot about things that Dodd-Frank has done. And in the news right now, Republicans are in the House are, are introducing a bill that could replace Dodd-Frank, which they've called the Financial Choice Act. What do you think of their bill? Well, fortunately, the chairman of the committee, the Republican who did that, is very extreme, even by Republican standards. And that bill has zero chance. It, it, it goes way too far. I do think that the Democrats, and this is one, you know, I know people, maybe younger people think, oh, we don't want to get into parties. Well, but parties are important. Hmm. In fact, there are very real differences. And, and this notion of financial regulation, consumer protection, very important. When we pass these laws... Um, we had three Republicans out of 190 in the House who voted for the bill. They all voted against it. Three senators out of uh, 40 voted for the bill. Uh, the Republicans are on the whole trying to erode all those uh, uh, protections. And enough Democrats in the Senate, they'll filibuster, they'll keep them happening. What I fear is that the Republicans will appoint people to administer these laws who will be very weak. You know, a law can't administer mm -hmm. itself, mm. and that will be the issue. An example of that is, and I, I got to say, and I really want to write an article about this, Mr. Trump proclaims that he is a great deal maker. And we all know there are different types of deals. Uh, the One of the most dishonest is what we call bait and switch, mm. where they 
tell you they're going to do one thing and then you wind up with the other. During the campaign, uh, Donald Trump attacked Hillary Clinton because she'd spoken to Goldman Sachs, and he ran an ad denouncing Goldman Sachs. He made a big deal about Goldman Sachs. A couple of days ago, I read the newspaper. His chief economic advisor in the White House is Gary Cohn, who was the number two man at Goldman Sachs. And he recently met with Richard Cordray, who's a very able, tough-minded guy who is the administrator of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and told him that he had to quit because we gave him a fixed term. And he threatened to make things tough on him uh, if, if he didn't quit. So you want to talk about bait and switch. Here is Donald Trump campaigning about how he's going to be tough on Goldman Sachs. And once he's in office, he takes the guy who used to be the number two man at Goldman Sachs and sends him to uh, uh, cut back on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So as um, these changes happen and whether there is a repeal or whether there's somebody in charge who is not as diligently administering these laws, what is the practical effect on the American consumer and the economy at large? Well, on the economy at large, I am worried if it goes on long enough, you could get another potential crisis. Look, the problem was in 2008 that a lot of financial institutions promised to repay things. They took on debt, and they didn't have to have the money behind it. And basically what we did in the law was to say, among other things, you can get indebted if you think that's a good deal, but you're going to have to be able to stand behind it. You're going to have to put the money aside. You're gonna, a part of it was they came up with something in the beginning in the 80s called securitization. Sixty years ago, if you borrowed money, you borrowed it from the person you were going to have to repay. Now, if I have to repay you the loan, you're going to be very careful before you lend it to me. But then, partly because money came in from non-bank sources like oil-producing countries, and partly because information technology made it possible, they developed a thing where I would make 500 loans and immediately put them into a security, package them, and sell them to somebody else. So I didn't care whether the loan got repaid or not. I got paid by selling the loan, and then it was somebody else's problem whether they were repaid. So the, the, the discipline of being careful who you lend to, that went away. We have changed that. If they are not careful about administering that, then we will could have the same kind of problem. I am somewhat encouraged because even if they don't administer it strongly, if it's on the books, it is a deterrent. On the other hand, with the Consumer Bureau, there is one thing they can do without having uh, enough for filibustering. So people who live in the state of a Republican senator you want to protect yourself, write and tell them this. We gave the Consumer Bureau in the law protection against the appropriations process. That is, we gave them an amount of money that comes sort of mm. automatically through the Federal Reserve. If they're subject to an annual appropriation, the conservatives who now run Congress, who don't like the Consumer Bureau, since they can't abolish it altogether, they'll try to fire the director, they will cut back the funds. You can cut the funds back to the point where it can't be very effective. And they can do that with 51 votes under mm. the process known as reconciliation. So one way people can protect themselves is to make sure the Consumer Bureau is not reduced in its resources. So um, people should write to their senator and say, do not vote to take away the financial autonomy of the Consumer Bureau because that's, that's protecting me. So just on a on a philosophical level, do you think that the regular person should be able to understand what banks and financial institutions are actually doing? 
there are going to be elements which are going to be hard to understand. We should simplify it. Let's put it this way. Uh, it should be less complicated. But, uh, look, there are some things not everybody's going to understand everything. I, I'll be honest. I don't understand electricity. I don't understand computers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, you don't want to sacrifice. Uh, uh, there was legitimate sophistication. There are things, even derivatives, which people uh, have been a problem. But derivatives have a useful role. They started out for agriculture. You're a farmer, and you want to make plans for growing. Well, a derivative, a hedge would be this. You figured out how much it was going to cost you to plant and what the market was likely to be like and how much money you could make. But you couldn't count for the weather. The weather might destroy you. Or the weather might destroy somebody else, and then you'd make a whole lot more money. So you hedged. Hmm. You bought an instrument which said, you know what? Here's the amount you're going to be able to get for your wheat or your hogs or whatever. If something happens that devastates you, we'll take care of that. You'll still get the same amount. On the other hand, if something happened that would have made you very much richer, you don't get the benefit of that. In other words, you, it took the gambling out of the, this. So done right, they, they, they can work. And there are some inherent complications, uh, but they, they've taken the complications beyond what is needed. Do you think there's something in particular that young people should know about in terms of regulations that they don't understand very well? Well, um, first of all, basic point, and I know it may be countercultural, that on the whole, there's a big party difference. The Consumer Bureau would never have passed if the Democrats didn't have the House, the Senate, and the presidency. I mean, the, the parties differ. Well, the parties differ on abortion. They differ on LGBT rights. They differ on climate change. So this, uh, oh, I don't care about the parties. and I, I mean, I, unfortunately, that, that is a reality. So they, one should understand who's sort of on, uh, on, 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 on what side. Then it becomes uh, important to do it sort of area by area. There's no one general thing to, uh, uh, to know. It is, though, finally, I would say, it is important to remember, regulators can allow bad things to happen. So people should be understanding that we can pass the law like the Consumer Bureau, but if they put the wrong person in there, it's not going to do anybody any good. So you've been giving really great tips in general for people's personal finance lives throughout the interview, but what do you wish you could have told a younger version of yourself in terms of money? I think I was always pretty careful about it. I, well, I'll tell you, this, but it's very unique to me. I decided when I was in my 20s that I was going to work in government to the extent that I could which meant that I was not going to make as much money as I might have elsewhere as a lawyer. But I thought that was okay because I'm gay, and I've known that since I was 13, which meant that I was very unlikely to have dependents. And so when I got to Congress in 1981, I made the decision not to uh, participate in the pension plan. It was a very lucrative pension plan. But you know what? I'm, I don't really need it. I'll get some political points for not being in the pension plan, which means I can take more unpopular stands and, you know, sets an offset. And I need the money now, and I plan to stay in Congress for a long time. So, you know, but I, I don't really need the pension. And then things change, and I get married. And my husband is much younger than I, <laughs> and I now wish that I'd joined the pension plan because I have deprived him of that pension later on. So save early, invest, and know that even if you don't think it's possible, you might end up with some dependents anyway. Well, that's that's uh, you should be very careful about that. And I suppose don't. I guess I would say this, and let me generalize that into a principle. B 
be very careful before you do something irrevocable. Be prudent, but, but doing something irrevocable assumes a degree of uh, infallibility as to prediction that's, that's not, not something you should count on. All right. Well, thank you so much, Congressman. That was really good advice. Yeah, great yeah. advice. You're welcome. Pleasure to talk to you. A real honor. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, it's time now for our final segment, The Bottom Line, where we look at a story from the world of business news and explain why you should care and how it could affect your bank balance. For this show, we're taking a look at a recent action taken by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to shut down a scam that was illegally tricking student loan borrowers into paying extra fees. That's my biggest fear. Yeah. (laughs) It's scary. I already have a tax issue. I can't deal with a student loan issue. It's just (laughs) not okay. You can't have two kinds of issues. you got to stick with one financial issue at a time. (laughs) But lucky for us, we've got payoff reporter James Denon here to explain more about the story and also whether I should be worried about my own loans. James, welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we have the news that the CFPB took this action. What exactly was going on? What's the story here? All right. So this happened last April. And last April, President Barack Obama, uh, he announced this new plan that would um, basically he announced a bunch of initiatives to try and make things a little easier for people with a lot of student loan debt. The main one was uh, he made it easier to apply for what's called income-based repayment, which is we've talked a lot about on the show. It's if you're having trouble with your student loan payments, you can apply to cap your payments at a certain level of your income so that you're not going broke paying off these student loans. Side question. I don't know if if you have uh, thoughts or advice on this, but how would you know if you're somebody who should try to do that? I mean, it's really up to you. Like, like there's a trade-off. I mean, you want to be paying as much of as 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 big of a monthly student loan payment as you can because saving money, saving money on interest by getting rid of your debt faster is one of the sh- only surefire investments that you can make because you're guaranteed to not pay those interest payments. So you want to be paying off as much as you feasibly can. But also, if if you're missing rent, if if you're carrying a large credit card balance, if you're you know, can't afford groceries at the end of the month or anything like that because you're making these big student loan payments, you should apply for income-based repayment and lower those payments because everyone's got to eat. That seems like a really reasonable way of figuring out whether you should do that. So this was a scam. Yeah. So basically after, and this is a very common practice in in the world of, of financial scams, is any time that there's like a big law um, or a big rule change, especially one that benefits consumers in this way, uh, scammers will try and piggyback on the scam and say, apply here for your XYZ that Congress just passed or that mm. President Obama just announced. So there are lots of people that had that were running these ads, come here to collect your Obama student loan forgiveness. You know, the banner ads that would be on the Internet for sites that college students or recent graduates would be using. And so people thought that they were enrolling in student loan forgiveness. By the way, student loan forgiveness doesn't really exist. It's one of the hardest types of debt you can get rid of. Uh, it doesn't even bankruptcy doesn't necessarily discharge your student loans. So if you see an ad or uh, an email or some sort of if anyone approaches you saying like I'll forgive your student loans in a dark alley, like that's, that's not real. That's that's instantly red flags should be going off because yeah. it's one of the s- stickiest debts that are out there. And anyone who comes up to you and claims that they have a way to make your student loans go away is probably pushing something a little dubious. Yeah, also pretty much uh, any financial transaction yeah. in a dark alley. Yeah, no, there are, there. I mean, there are exceptions. You can, you, I mean, if you're certain types of public service, 
Uh, if you do 10 years of public service, you can have them forgiven. If you're a teacher, if you're a veteran who's in, uh, wounded in the line of duty and you and you can't get the job that your degree was to pay for, you can maybe have them discharged or forgiven. Really, really, really rare isolated circumstances. If you Otherwise, if you see student loan forgiveness, it's probably a scam. So would people then go to a website that looked like other borrowing websites and they just... That was one of that was one of the things that the CFPB uh, cracked down on uh, was trying to use Department of Education or mm. DOE or a logo that looked like DOE's or a website layout that looked like the Department of Education's layout to try and make it seem like you were dealing with an official government website. If it's not .gov, it's not a government website. Yo, to be fair though, I pay off my student loans at two websites that like one looks like exactly like Jumpstart First Grade. I don't know if you guys remember Jumpstart First Grade. <laughs> it was amazing. There was this like wiener dog that would like. Anyway, it taught me math. But and then the other one looks like a bank, and I would never be like. And this is what a student loan pay off website. Maybe no. am I legitimate being right. <laughs> And that's no, and that's there's there's a distinction there, right? Because the people who you pay make your student loan payments to those those are outside companies, right? right? So it's and the DOE gives out those contracts. You should, if you're concerned, you should go and check the list of the, on the Department of Education of the list of the contractors that they work with, and make sure that the person you're adding checks to is on that list. If these are federal loans. I've um, never done that, but I just got like a huge pang of anxiety and was like, I should do that immediately. Yeah, and James, <laughs> just off the top of your head, how likely do you think it is that Jumpstart First Grade is on that list? Uh, not not good. I wouldn't put that you up there. You don't even know what Jumpstart First Grade <laughs> is. I can see it in your eyes. I'm so mad right now. That CD mom did not get the attention or respect it deserves. So back to this particular scam. Right. So in this particular <laughs> scam... <laughs> Uh, in this particular scam, basically, uh, people were enrolling you in income-based repayment, which is the standard Department of Education offering. That's what the was part of the initiatives that were unrolled. So uh, basically, what the, what these uh, companies were doing was they were enrolling you in income-based repayment through the federal program, and then making it look like they were saving you all this money. Uh, when in reality, borrowers could just go and enroll themselves. And they were charging expensive recurring fees, a monthly recurring fee, even though that this is only something you have to do once a year. How many borrowers were affected? Also, like how much money we talking? These, uh, well, I think a lot of it was uh, in the upfront fee uh, that they required. So a really important thing to understand about debt negotiation, debt consolidation companies is because of the Consumer Financial Protection Act, they have to do something before you pay the money. They have to renegotiate a debt. They have to lower your payment. There has to be something like that before you pay for it. These services were charging you up front, which they weren't supposed to do. They were also charging like $39 a month, which like isn't the end of the world, but that's just basically like taking $39 and lighting it on fire every month. And also it adds up. It does. It definitely does. This is about 4,300 borrowers uh, who lost a total of $3.6 million. But the amounts themselves, they weren't that huge. Uh, it was a Three hundred to four hundred dollar upfront fee, perhaps, um, and then in some cases a recurring fee of about thirty dollars a month. So many copies of Jumpstart First Grade. That feels like a, a lot of money to me. It adds up, yeah. Um, it definitely adds up. Definitely the type of scam where they're not trying to take your life savings; they're trying to get a small recurring payment onto your credit card that you're going to forget about, and then three years later you've actually lost a lot of money. So how do you actually find out if this is happening to you? What's the best way to check? If you had enrolled in a student loan forgiveness plan, uh, you need to go look at your statements. 
uh, make sure you're not still being charged. And then you need to identify the name of the provider, this person that you paid for the services, and uh, see if they were one of the firms that were involved in the suit. Generally, when the CFPB levies an enforcement action, if you are entitled to restitution, it happens automatically. But there are lots and lots and lots of different debt consolidation services, debt monitoring services, a few different types of services that were kind of using this shady marketing tactic. Um, so any kind of you know student loan product, you need to you should go double check because that's a shady area of consumer finance. So last question, bottom line here. Um, there's a lot of talk about the CFPB, about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau being weakened by new legislation, maybe even it stopping to exist entirely. Would a weakened bureau be able to still take action to stop scams like this? And if not, if something like this didn't exist, how would that affect people's wallets? The reason why the CFPB is really important is because it's the only agency out there that is making its enforcement decisions based on complaints. So like most of the time when, when the CFPB does an enforcement action, they haven't broken the law, right? They've just done something kind of shady that really isn't fair. It's a lot of deceptive marketing, right? Like, like you know, using Department of Education logos. looking websites and logos on your stuff, right? Like a lot of the things that they're enforcing aren't really illegal. It would be very, very hard for you to try and sue based on it. You know, a lot of these complaints are people who've only lost 50 or $100. You're not going to go sue someone because of that. You can't really go to court and say, right. they tried to trick me. Right. But writ large, companies getting away with this are taking millions of dollars from consumers every mm -hmm. year. And that was the whole reason why the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created, to monitor these complaints, uh, to create a public record of them. So if you are researching credit cards and you want to go see, hey, is this credit card that I'm buying one that's been complained about 300 times by the, you know, to the CFPB, that's the only place where you can really go and access that that sort of information. And so consumers really, really would, uh, without the CFPB, uh, have uh, less recourse um, in the events of, 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 you know, they've been wronged in this way. Um, and then they'd also have a harder time accessing reliable, uh, transparent, information that's not coming from a, a, you know, corporation that's trying to make money from you in some way. Yeah, it's sort of, it's almost also related to what we were talking about last week, where it's like, you could complain on social media and have like viral moment, but chances are being said like, oh, this really annoying thing happened where the language was confusing isn't going to go viral mm -hmm. and having a place, you know? No, and it's not, it's not something that the media loves to cover, you know, like, like it's, it's going to be... I, I would definitely always write a story if there was like, you know, a credit card ad that was like a little bit misleading. But that's not the type of thing that millions of people are going to share and, and that the word is going to get out about naturally. It's really important that there's a repository of that information so that when people do think that they may have been wronged, there's an easy place where they can go look and, and get reliable information about whether there was a scam, whether there was a deceptive tactic, what kind of options they might have. A small, annoying scam is the hardest scam to stop. It totally is. Well, thanks, James, so much for coming on the show again. We can't wait to have you back. Thanks for having me. Pleasure talking to you. That's it for this episode. Subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is from Breakmaster Cylinder, and our producer is Alan Haberchak. Thank you, Alan, and thanks to everyone who was listening. If you want to help us out, you can do that by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and a review for the payoff. Seriously, you have no idea how much that helps. Plus, we love to know what you think. Also, if you have ideas for what we should talk about next, email us at payoffpod at mike.com. And you can find out more about us on Twitter at ThePayoffByMike or online at mike.com slash payoff. See you next time.